0: Welcome to Game Changers, a video game industry podcast brought to you by Convoy. We're a firm that invests in companies driving the future of the gaming industry. In this podcast, we will go beyond the gaming experience and highlight founders within the gaming space whose businesses and thought leadership sit at the frontier of the industry. I'm Jackson Vaughn. I'm Jason Chapman. I'm Josh Chapman. And we're the founders of Convoy. Convoy. Each month, one of us is going to bring you a candid and open conversation with leaders in this industry. Who are these game changers? What have they built? And what are they doing now? Let's dig in. Holly, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So first question I have, actually, Mouse House, what is that?
1: Uh- Oh my gosh, you you really dragged some stuff from my past. (laughs) Earlier on in my career, I remember reading or hearing about this is what they did at IDEO, which was like a big design firm house And one of the things that one of the founders did is they would keep like this bug list of things around them. And so I would keep this book and one of the things that, and I would just start writing things that would kind of bother me. And during that time, I'd run around to a lot of meetings. And because I was a designer, I also had, I'd have to pull my mouse. I would have to like pull my entire laptop off of the docking station. I might be dating myself a little bit, but uh, (laughs) basically the whole idea of the mouse house was to find a way to clip the mouse to the laptop. And that was like one of like, oh, many, many different kind of maybe embarrassing types of solutions to bugs that I found. I think the Mouse House probably also ended up on a turntable because I was always turning my, my screen around to show people things and it got really frustrating. So it was a two for one. But the Mouse House really was a, a response to just my bug list that I, I would run <laughs> around.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Didn't get to market ever?
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no, not quite. I might have done some pictures. It was a very lo-fi prototype uh, with just some Velcro and s- some sticking stuff. And I'm like, hey, let's go. We can just stick it to the computer and, and, and go. But uh, back in the day, we used to meet in person and we had just a lot of peripherals with us.
0: Right, right. No, that's, that's awesome. The other, the other question we always like to ask our, our, our guests is, as we're a gaming-focused podcast what are, you, what are you playing right now?
1: One of the games I'm playing and actually playing with my daughter is Wordscapes. So it's basically a, a word scramble game and you unscramble the words to find a certain number of words and you could collect uh, coins to feed your pets. And they have some very, very cute pets. And apparently I've been meeting a lot of adults that also play this game as well. They're like, yeah, I'm 1,400. I'm like, wow, that's crazy.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's one of the, I think, great things about games is it transcends generations or it has the the ability oh, to, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. This is definitely a game that I, I really do enjoy playing with my daughter and it's a bit educational too.
0: Yeah. How, how old is your daughter?
1: Uh, my daughter's 10. So just perfect timing to get her inducted.
0: What was uh, young Holly, Holly at, at 10 years old?
1: I grew up in the 80s and 90s. We didn't have the internet. So you would go to somebody's house and watch it or you would go to the arcade and you'd either wait in line until it was your turn. And so we also had just a lot of free time. So everything was highly intentional. And I think for me, there was a lot of things where I would kind of just fill up my time with different types of projects. I really liked Archie's. That was one of the comic books, but I also really loved... Back then, the Sunday comics were super fun, and then they would put it into these big digest books. My dad had a huge wood pile of things, and I remember my next-door neighbor, her dad was a carpenter, so we just take things from the wood scraps and build things. At one point, we I lived on a coley sack, and me and the kids decided to create like a Koli Sack newspaper. So just a lot of random things that I guess maybe the pandemic allowed people a little bit more time to do, play games. Um, So very kind of probably normal childhood without the internet and not as much TV, but definitely some (laughs) TV for sure.
0: That's fair. That's fair. And then you went on to graduate from UCLA with a BA in communications and UC Berkeley School of Information Management and Systems. I mean, talk to me a little bit about, about your you know your intentions with going to school and, and doing yeah. these degrees. What, what were you thinking at the time?
1: Oh, man. So I think when I was at UCLA, you know, I went in as undeclared and I just didn't quite mm-hmm. know what I wanted to do. Um, I chose communications partly because it was just very interesting all the way from interpersonal to mass communications. But one of the things I was very interested in was um, international relations. So I actually picked up a a second major in East Asian studies. Um, I was Mm. very interested in, I studied Chinese and After if if you ever go to college and you take a language, you you realize like the language is every single day at like 8 a.m. and it's just brutal. So (laughs) if you survive (laughs) the I don't know why that is, but it it just is. And so you survive the first quarter, and then you're like, well, I don't want to lose it, and you keep going. And then soon I had three years of Chinese language, and I'm like, well, what can I apply this to? So I ended up studying East Asian studies and I started getting interested in Thinking about doing foreign service actually, mm-hmm. and that's where I ended up interning at the State Department. My first, I interned twice with the U.S. State Department. The first time was at the Foreign Service Institute, which was really fun. And basically, the project I had there was quite unique. Uh, the professor there, she a uh, Dr. Anne Im- Imamura. She was focused on helping training for East Asia, and she saw my background in communications, had a little bit of media, and she said, "I, I need you to do a, a film videography and annotate." videography for diplomats going overseas, particularly to China. And actually, it was a pretty fun summer. All I did was watch videos and annotate them. So I would, I would watch something like raise the red lantern. And then I would annotate the cultural background, the economic background or the political background. And so that was that was a ton of fun. And and it was there during the summer where I was like, you know what, maybe, maybe I want to go try uh, seeing what it's like to be a political economic officer or work in yeah. the Foreign Service. So I decided to, Apply in spring of 99 to the American Embassy in Ireland. And over there, that's where I really just kind of got a very interesting look into. Kind of how foreign service works, and just more exposure, which was like super interesting. I think one of the things that I realized working there, just I just was so drawn to tech, and mm-hmm. during that time, it was just a big boon in terms of you know more and more people were coming online. I was always in, interested in kind of that impact. And even when I was at, at the American embassy there, at, at one point, they even allowed me to, They no more. This is like really, really early on. And I think they, they were like, yeah, sure, you could do, do the website. So they let me like fickle around with the website with a big, nice blink tag. And they pretty much got rid of that very quickly. There, I just learned, you know, there was two different speeds. There was government speed and then there was tech speed and you could push a piece of code and you can you can see it working right away. And I thought that that was the coolest thing. So when I came back uh, stateside, I did work in consulting at um, a firm that's no longer here. But Arthur Anderson was doing a lot of different types of consulting. When I got there, I just realized, you know what, this. This is cool. The consulting is cool, but I wanted a lot more technology. And that's how I ended up at, at UC Berkeley is studying information management and systems. And then it was there. I just I fell in love with uh, user inter- interface design or they called it human computing interaction. It really was kind of this marriage between my love of people and my love of technology. And I went to UC Berkeley and I never la- left the Bay Area. I just it yeah, was wow. such a, an amazing time that th- there was just so much change that was happening here in the Bay Area that I just never left.
0: And is that what? What year was that, or what? What? Uh, yeah,
1: time period. Uh, that was in the early 2000s. So it was, it was very interesting because a lot of people had come back to school because of the dot com bust. Right. And then there was also 9/11 that happened. So that was mm-hmm. that was quite some time ago. It really was. I I remember this. I mean, the infrastructure just wasn't there to a point where there was somebody in class who said, they said, "Oh man, wouldn't it be great if I was connected to the internet all the time?" And we're like, "What are you talking about?" I mean that <laughs> that is just how early things were and you just couldn't imagine a time where now this internet it's it you're connected all the time uh, everywhere and it's it's like electricity so seeing all the applications that could be built on there uh, so it was just a it is a very very different it was a, a different time and things moved very very quickly between th- in that last decade of things you're like wow that's that's moved pretty fast. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And and at your time at UC Berkeley, was that where you got exposed to IDEO? Was that sort of where you, you found out about and the, the bug tracking?
1: <laughs> well, it's kind of funny. It wasn't until um, after UC Berkeley, but it was at UC Berkeley that I just learned that there was this thing called like Human computing interaction in the industry is sometimes called UX design or even product design now because everything's so many things are online either via mobile. There's so many ways where humans have to interact with the software like why aren't we designing software that is human accessible in Mm. many ways And, and it really did start giving you a bit of the lens. But it was really at AOL where we we're exposed a little bit more to some of the industry titans. Over there it was a bit more academic. So it's just a complete mind shift for me going there. And I was like, oh wow, this is this is very different in terms of design thinking. I it's it's always funny because usually in design that we always talked about like how art is really an expression of self, but design usually has a purpose and a goal. And I remember leaving, because oftentimes I don't know, this used to be a very famous comic, but there's this little kid who's outside of this door and he's trying to push this door where the sign says pool and it, it doesn't have a handle or anything. Right. So, and it right. says Midville school for the gifted. It's just, <laughs> it was, it was just, it's kind of funny because I, sometimes I always felt that way, but in there, the biggest shift in changing was like, maybe the user isn't the problem, but the design's the problem. Right.
0: <laughs> what was that journey to AOL for you? What brought you yeah. there?
1: So I think like I just really did fall in love at UC Berkeley with human computing interaction. Um, but when when I had graduated, it was I ended up going back into consulting, and I quite honestly wasn't it wasn't quite for me at the time. And I was very interested in going back into UX design. So I worked at Accenture for a little bit. These consulting places do. Uh, very wonderful job in exposing me a lot of things. One of the best things that did expose me to is I found one of my founders there. So I'm a huge fan of if you finding co-founders in the places that you've worked with before. I always think that that's really great. Other people have found their co-founders through college. But for me, I found my co-founders via work. And that was one of the places he was working. And funny enough, he was doing a project at night. And I'm like, why are you, why are you dressed up on Fridays? And he's, he finally told me, me he was pitching sandhill road and he told me about (laughs) it was way before its time but it was it was a mobile social networking app where you could turn it on you could fill out a profile and you could be like i'm looking for a couch or i'm looking for a date you're looking for somebody and then Mm. if there's somebody around it would beep and it'd be like, oh, they're around. There's somebody here that fits what you're looking for. A bit before it's time. This was during like the Nokia candy bar phone. So this is, this is where I'd, and and I, I was like, oh, I'd love to help on. He's like, yeah, we de- we definitely need a UX designer. I'm like, yeah, I'd love to help in this. Just kind of practice for whenever I would be able to go back. And finally, after probably about 18 months at Accenture, I ended up applying for a job at AOL. The market started looking a bit better, the job market. And mm-hmm. um I I got my first real like job as a product designer at AOL working on community products, media products, safety and security, pretty much the whole gamut and it was such a special special place and like products and brands to work on. I mean literally this company brought all of America online. Yeah. And it was in the old Netscape offices cuz I I don't know if people remember but they had bought Netscape. I went there and really learned a lot about getting, getting products to life or trying to get them to life. I will say at a larger company, it, it is a little bit harder to launch things, but I definitely a lot of other things I've learned and I found my fourth co-founder there. So like I, like I said, I'm a big proponent of finding co-founders of where you, uh, where you work. Why is that important,
0: right? Finding co-founders where you work? Now, obviously it's not the only way to do it, yeah, it's but it's definitely um,
1: not the only place for sure. I mean, This could be survivor bias because I'm like, well, it worked for me. So I think it should work for other people. (laughs) Um, But yeah. So the reason why I think it's like very interesting is you learn how to work together in a work setting. You know how to kind of prior. You learn how the other person prioritizes things. You work together. I mean. My job as a product designer is very collaborative. There's really no way, like I said, design always has a goal. So there's really no way you could just do it in the dark. You kind of have to collaborate with people continuously. So I think also doing a startup at the co-founder stage, you have to you have to collaborate with people and you have to figure out what's the best way of working together. And then I think also, quite honestly, it gives you a mental map on how to work together. So every company has its own culture on do they have Monday meetings? How do they respond to email? Is it right away? Do they respond to every email? Like there's all these kind of little things. On how you work together how do you guys set goals or some people are used to certain cadences and i think that's kind of nice that you have that same mapping together i guess yeah. in terms of of that so that that's another plus in terms of why i think it's it's kind of an interesting place and a good place to find co-founders because you already know how you're going to work together in a full-time capacity too and don't get me wrong i think a startup is like next level stress But it's it's certainly, you know, yeah, I think that's why sometimes they say friends, sometimes friends don't always work together or or family as well. Right. It's just kind of next level. But yeah, I think for me, it did work out. And for us, it it did work out. So maybe that's why I think it pushes it. But those are those are definitely reasons why I think there's also ways in which where you understand what is needed and what is not needed and how to fill those holes because you saw it happen in the same in, in that same environment.
0: Well, I think what's also interesting on that point is a lot of founders, young founders, right? There's this a story and an uh, an arc and and uh, something that we all hear about in the news and media of uh, young founders dropping out of college and starting yeah. something amazing. But it's you know if you look at the statistics, it's that's really not the case for most big businesses. We don't all realize that that's not quite the reality for everyone.
1: It is. A, I, I will say the um the you're right. I know I know the test statis- like the statistics that you're talking about and the studies that they've done. It's it's probably the ones that we think about are like Facebook and Apple and the ones that just get some juice to it, Google. So I guess some of the larger ones do have that pattern right. match. Uh, but there's a lot of large ones that you don't hear about that are just as successful. It's just partly, maybe it's in the B2B world, like a good example of Salesforce. For sure, B2B, I think, has that. And even some of the B2C folks, even in the gaming world, since it is a gaming podcast, sometimes you have folks that have just worked together for a really long time on it, like Supercell, Epic, mm-hmm. Folks that didn't just come out of college and just kind of figure it out. There is sometimes that trend of of finding just phenomenal people, and they could come in almost any age, which is very heartening for anybody of any age out there. (laughs) If if you're not 18, there's still a chance for you.
0: Exactly, exactly. No, it should be inspiring (laughs) to, to I think all of us. Talk to me a little bit about you know you found these different people right along the way. At the time, I'm assuming you didn't know that they would be future co founders. Is that fair?
1: That's super fair. I think along the way, the one that I met at Accenture, I, we just enjoyed each other's company and I liked working on projects and the same one at AOL. We also our our CEO. I had known all my life. He's actually my cousin. So I knew with him when I went to him, I, I knew I was like, you know, I have lots of ideas, but I can't turn it into a business. And he goes, well, I could turn it into a business, Holly, but we need somebody who could build it. And I'm like, OK, I know just the people. I think there were, it was a bit kismet that we were able to get along so well initially, still like over time, just be able to work really well together. I don't know if it's because three of the four of us had consulting backgrounds. (laughs) And so Mm. we kind of knew that world in some ways. And we're like, okay, this is the divide and conquer, if you will. And then two of us had product backgrounds too. That could, or sorry, three of us had product backgrounds. So that could have been really helpful too, like, at AOL, I learned what it took to launch product. But there are co-founding teams. I think that the best co-founding team that's full of consultants is actually the Riot founders, right? There were two consultants and they were like, I love to play games. Uh, Let's figure this out. So I think that there there was something there in terms of similar, like we all had a bit of work experience in the same industry. And I think that was incredibly helpful in terms of Being able to kind of understand each other, being able to shortcut one another, or not shortcut, but just shortcut some of the things. I I also think we all had kind of a unique skill set. So I couldn't necessarily do the engineer's work and the engineering Mm -hmm. person couldn't do my work. I couldn't necessarily do the CEO's work and vice versa. So we didn't. We had a bit of specialists on the team, which I think I I call them generalist specialists. So people Mm -hmm. who aren't scared to like kind of push the boundaries of not knowing. But if you specialize in something, I think that's like really great. (laughs) And usually people like separate it between like a builder and someone who sells. But this is probably why people investors love investing in teams versus just one person. It's like a one man band (laughs) versus like to play a band it's much better if you have multiple people. You could just do so much more. I certainly think having everyone had unique skill sets. I do remember this one time. It was really funny. I think Me and my engineering friends, we would go around and around about like what was more important, engineering or design. And I remember we're having this in front of our CEO. I mean, we all shared this back room, so it wasn't like anything too big, you know. And we would go back and around, and he'd be like, Well, Holly, I can build everything. That's what the engineer would say. And I'm like, Yeah, but they won't know how to flush the toilets once you built it. Like, that's what the designer is here for, is figuring out how to use it. (laughs) And then he's like, You guys are, uh, then the, the business guy jumped in and he's like, You guys are both silly. He's like, What's what's the point of building this wonderful house that people can use if nobody can find it, right? Because on his head, he was thinking like, I need to find people to come to this thing. I need to do marketing. I need to do all these types of things. So I think, you know, we never really had that. It was kind of like a silly discussion slash argument. I wouldn't even call it an argument, but I just kept thinking about it. And I was like, oh yeah, that's so true. We're all needed here. And all of us bring something unique to the table. And I think that that's pretty important.
0: You know, you've got this... Incredible group of founders together now. And it wasn't gaming, right, that you were going after. What were you doing?
1: Yeah, we, we basically raised like $500,000 off of a, a corporate social network. I know you probably just fell asleep hearing that. <laughs> yeah, super sneezeville. We thought we were so bright. We're like, you know what? Facebook's killing it. Uh, but they're going after poor people. These college students, all they have is time. But they don't really have any money. Why don't we go after people who have money, which is like young professionals like us before we joined, we decided to do a startup. <laughs> and this found, is
0: 2006, like, right?
1: Yeah, this is in 2006. So we worked on that, I would say, for about eight months.
0: And I, and I remember you had an amazing name for this.
1: Oh, yeah. So it's called Water Cooler. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. what it was because it was like, talk around the water cooler. Just at the time, blogs were a really big deal. This whole idea of self-publishing, this whole idea also, one of the things that was a huge shift. And I mean, like I said, I've I've been privy to a lot of these shifts is that now you didn't have to just download things. There was the internet. And soon, and I'll talk about it in our journey, is the cloud. You know, The cloud really impacted us. When we initially started in 2006, there was no such thing as a cloud. We had to rack our own servers. So we worked on that for about, we raised some money on that and we we're like, investors were like, Hey, that's a great idea. Well, it was really only one investor and that's really all you need. <laughs> Our first <laughs> investor. And she basically was like, okay, I'll, I'll put my money on. She, I think she took a lot of pity on us. She put in some money and basically we worked on that idea for about eight months. So in eight months, we did three product iterations and we only had about 1400 registered users, five DAUs, which was probably our mom's, and about 20 <laughs> cease and desist letters, right? Because we pretty much built like a intranet in some ways, like a LinkedIn for companies. And it was really the intranet. I love win-win situations. So it's positive for the customer. I want it to be positive for the business, right?
0: it's an incredible transition that that you all were a part of shaping right when, when you think back to sort of all these pivots right that you <laughs> went through jumping to jumping jumping to facebook jumping from facebook to mobile where you you had seen yeah. a lot of success how, how did you and the rest of the the founding team and management get comfortable and and build the confidence yeah. to make these pivots
1: yeah so i will credit a lot to our ceo he has done a phenomenal job of Of really kind of taking that ship forward and being able to look out beyond. I think that it's very interesting that if you're able to see something ahead, it's one thing to be able to see it. And it's another thing to be able to like right the ship. And then it's another thing to try to get people on board. I think one of the things given all the way back to the co-founding days, one of the things that I think I really enjoyed about our team is that even though we we're all specialists it was very clear that there was i i felt very respected for my role and i respected the others for what they had so at the end of the day i think that was very helpful in shortcutting and getting at least the exact team and founders on board mm-hmm. of kind of trying it out now sometimes it doesn't it doesn't work out so I, you can't say that it always is going to work out and sometimes you know we we tried to to build our own website and it just didn't work a couple of times <laughs> and uh it, it was very hard, but I think that was definitely one one thing. As the co founding team, I think was was pretty helpful in that. I think that kind of trickled down in many ways into some of the culture, and it was very clear in our culture of just being very market driven. Being once, I kind of feel like we attracted people who wanted to make their mark, right? And they're like, "Hey, we've been given this amazing gift and opportunity to kind of ride these waves," and and you hear kind of market people talk about that. You can only ride the waves you can't create them and we were just in that very special time with the right team with the right skills and really everybody who we ended up hiring and it's kind of funny because i i think about how many times we shifted even technology we we moved up to san francisco to find flash developers and then we needed ruby on rails people and and then we needed unity people we were like the first <laughs> unity customers you know you just imagine that like there just wasn't we had to keep on retool, either retooling people or trying to find people to retool. And, and even for a while, actually for the longest time, we ended up taking investment bankers who loved games and basically helping them live up a game, like retooling people and their skill sets. Mm-hmm. Because the one thing about like a live game is you see every single click. Like it's it's different than, I, I just remember we acquired a team and they had built successful console games and then they launched this mobile game. It was just like 3 million downloads within like the first day. And the the guy was like, oh my God. And you could see the numbers flipping. <laughs> and it was just like, it just blew their minds because there just really wasn't a place like that. But now we could see every single click. So you really needed people who were could roll around in this data. And even even for us, there was just no models at that time. And again, like I I definitely credit my CEO. He he came up to me, he's like, Holly, I think I figured it out. I'm like, what did you figure out? Cohorted analysis, right? He's like at Starbucks, Mm -hmm. they know every single cup that the cost of every single cup and what the ROI is on that. And that's when we came up with things like we moved the, the industry had moved from DAUs over MAUs to show retention, moved into much more D1, D7 D14, and now this is like super common. But at the time, there was there was nothing. We kind of were just doing it blindly, which in some ways is a good thing right? because you're just like you don't know enough and you just kind of have to make do. Even way early on, there was no Google Analytics, so I remember building like literally a link tracking tool where you had to track the links because it just didn't exist. And now we have Mixpanel, we have we have right, a Segment, we have so many amazing things. Oh my gosh, yes! So now founders can just work on amazing games, right?
0: No, absolutely. And in, in in one of your essays on founder musings, right? You talk yeah, about yeah. three types of teams um, needed for your startup to grow. Uh, I think that's you know through the founding phase, through the growth phase, through the scale phase. You know, when you think back on the experience with Kabam, it w- what are those types of teams for yeah. each phase there?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of funny. It's like, oh, I should have. I thanks for and like not quoting, but tell me a little bit about the essay. I was like, sometimes I, I write a lot of stuff and I can't quite remember <laughs> certain things. But yeah, I definitely think like many companies, if you're so fortunate to get the point of scale, it isn't always kind of that way. And I think the best kind of analogies I think of is like different types of boats. And like the first phase is your founding phase. And that's where I really like the generalist specialist where everybody's in the rowboat together. And if you've ever like paddle boated or did any type of rowing, you know that every single person is really important, (laughs) right? Yes. And then you can also feel every single like the little waves impact you really big right Mm. and but the nicest thing in a rowboat is you can call like you can navigate a lot faster than say the titanic Mm. right in that phase usually it's a lot like what the co-founding team looks like it's it's very good to have a generalist specialist in my mind now definitely it can work in different ways but that feeling of of a rowboat is very much kind of what i envision and then that second phase where you do get to product market fit and product market fit it's kind of funny at some point every startup feels this it's like you're pushing either a snow a snowball up a hill (laughs) or like a rock up a hill right and everyone's going to go through that you're just going to push and push and push and at some point you're like maybe there's no market to be had there's no product market fit because what it's going to feel like on the product market fit side is that it's like instead of pushing, the rock is going to roll. And you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't keep up. And that's what product market fit kind of feels like in some ways. And that's like a really high growth phase. And the type of people that are attracted to that phase that we ended up finding as well, folks that can execute really quickly, they ask for, they do first and then ask for forgiveness later. There's a lot that sometimes the personalities will really clash. We lost a lot of people early on because it was very hard to get everybody contextually into into place. But there's a lot of communication that needs to go into place. And the people that you end up hiring there need, tend to be phenomenal managers and leaders. And they know how to work through people and really get people the best work possible, right? Because that's that's kind of a bit of the output eventually. The whole output of any tech company is, is always very interesting because it's past the days of the industrial point of view, right? Where, right. And now it's, it's very hard to see to see the work, uh, if you will, and very hard to measure it in some ways. So people in that phase are very good at getting you know the team to output whatever the goals that are needed. And I think of it like a yacht phase <laughs> where. Your capacity is so much larger, like we were able to run several studios, but all the infrastructure needed to be in place to be able to like report things up. You needed people managing it. You needed all of these things to be able to intake and make sure they're successful. And then you start feeling like, oh, am I too corporate now? One time, right. one time we had acquired a company and we we're in the green light process, and and they're like somebody on the phone was like, "Yeah, we just want to make sure that the mothership is happy." And I'm like, "The mothership? Who's the mothership?" I go, co- "Oh my god, we're the mothership now because <laughs> we acquired them." I was like, "Oh my gosh!"
0: What yeah. an interesting moment to experience. What do you think about managing sort of the transition between those phases, and how do you know right when you need to level up from yeah. the founding phase or the growth or the growth sure. to the scale?
1: So I kind of feel like for me, what I, we had found was so in the beginning, because you're a rowboat, you're actually doing all the work. And mm-hmm. what I found naturally were to happen that I realized like, OK, I need to grow the team or we need to grow the team is when usually the first phase I felt like, OK, during the daytime, I was doing all these meetings. And that night I was doing individual contributor work and I was like, OK, I'm not getting enough sleep. And I think that's really, really difficult. That's when it was I needed to to kind of move into this management phase. I was probably in that growth phase and needed to like hire people and kind of sort it out on how how would I be able to do this. So you can get some type of sleep, or you can get some folks in really quickly. I think uh, when you got when we got to the third phase, and I might have. at the benefit of being on the corporate services side because i ended up moving from design into or product design into hr so i was able to see and build the infrastructure for the entire company as we went into the scale phase so you're looking at performance reviews right you're looking at things that manager training leadership training these are all people where many of them it was their first job all the things like I've learned along the way, I was like, oh yeah, you know, setting goals, that that became very important setting goals so that everybody's on the same page. Not that we didn't have goals set in early on because we could all sit in a room and just say, okay, let's do this now. Okay, <laughs> you know, it was so much easier, but as it got bigger, it was, it was it was much more difficult. So I think like at every single phase, you could kind of feel it. Some rules of thumb that people have said that they said at ones and threes tends to be a big change. That's what somebody told me once, like a hundred people to 300 people. I can definitely see that's a change. 300 to like a thousand. There's definitely a lot of working through people. And then at the scale phase, culture becomes really important, right? And you're trying mm-hmm. to build it during the rocket ship phase. It's it's really funny because a lot of people will adopt this value during the rocket ship phase because you're just, and it's very aggro, but it's like the get, excuse my language, done. You can bleep that out later. But a lot of people <laughs> adopt that as a value because they're like, oh, get done. But they don't yeah. realize that at the end of the day, if that's a value, you actually end up with a lot of especially as it scales larger than just that growth phase. And so even we found our stuff that wasn't ever exactly the wording, but we did have to even change and evolve our values.
0: Well, yeah, once you reach that scale phase, right, and you feel like you've got it under control, with Caban, you know, what happened next, right? What what happened after once you got there?
1: <laughs> By the way, you never feel like you're under control. Everything's <laughs> always wacky. There's so many things where it's constantly feeling like, and I think many startup founders can feel this way. On the one hand, completely elated. On the other hand, you know that everything's going to, like could fall apart. You're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is crazy. So you never really feel that way. But in terms of like getting into that next phase of just like knowing when it's kind of time, in terms of like particularly exiting or or even thinking about that, that I would also say is very market-driven. A lot of these things tend to be a bit market-driven. Like I said, kudos to my CEO who spent a lot of time making sure there was money in the bank. So he was very much attuned to like what's happening in terms of the financing, even what's happening internally too. Can we meet these markers that are out there, right? So there's a lot of things that certainly the CEO has to do. I think that for us, it was just some really good timing on the exit. I mean, we could have a part two and talk a lot more detail about like, hey, you know, getting to a certain size, how much do you think you should raise? what should you think about? But just thinking about, it was just pretty amazing to build something of this kind of value, whether or not we exited, to try to keep up with that demand is very, very difficult, Um, especially if you're in gaming, building a game, building platform, making sure that people still love it over time and find so much value that they're willing to pay money for it. And so I certainly think, again, it was a bit of timing and some of it was a bit of luck, but the timing is a lot of, looking at the markets, we knew things were consolidating. They had been consolidating for quite time. I think it's gotten a bit worse over time. A lot of people would say right now that there could be definitely some smaller exits as the larger ones are trying to stay afloat or the mid ones are trying to stay afloat. But you'll, you'll you even see it at the larger level, right? Isn't Activision trying to get like there's there's that merger that's been trying to go through mm-hmm. for like a year or so? <laughs> yeah with Microsoft so I mean I mean Regulation you see it, concerns yeah exactly yes. exactly right so so you kind of run into that but I'm I'm just so grateful that we've been able to build some games of just continuous value for people. I don't think we ever spoke about this, but we ended up building games for Marvel, Fast and Furious, The Hobbit, basically any uh, PG-13 franchise out there. And and some of those, I I think our largest game, uh, Marvel Contest of Champions is still out there. I just saw it in the Apple store on one of their demo phones. I was like, whoa, this is kind of cool. Still going. Yeah. So just to be able to build something of that kind of value has we're so fortunate, that's for sure. And to unlock all these new players, like some people are like, yeah, I've never played games until I hit the mobile phone, or I never would have touched the mobile phone if it hadn't been for your game. Or even the more heartwarming stories is, is cross generational, you know, where we had this really great story of this father who would play Marvel Contest of Champions with his son. Unfortunately, he was diagnosed with cancer, but he set it up with the game team to be able to send a special message around Christmas time when he knew his son was going to miss him the most. So it's just amazing what games and these gaming platforms can really do to really bring people together in so many ways.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. And so, I mean, heartwarming. And I, I mean, it must be so elating to... To get a really, really get a sense for all the lives that you have uh, been able to touch through Kabam and all the games produced.
1: Oh, yeah. It's been super amazing.
0: There's also life after Kabam for you, right? What have you been up to? You know, you've been working with Y Combinator. You've got PKO investments. You've done a lot of incredible things post-Kabam as well. Talk to me a little bit about those.
1: Well, basically I ended up once once we sold, I ended up onto the side of investing into future founders. There are many ways where selfishly I invested a lot into female founders because I think there should be more people that look like me there. So mm-hmm. honestly, selfishly, I don't feel like such a freak. <laughs> but I went to YC and learned a ton. For those who don't know YC, Y Combinator is probably one of the top early like seed stage accelerators they invented the accelerator model, which is funding in batches. It was really, really wonderful. I worked there for about two years, got to take a really good look into... Great talent. That's always the nicest thing. Going more onto the investor side since then, learning a lot from uh, Jackson and all the Convoy guys as well. I became an advisor to you guys, and definitely an incredible advisor. No, we're you lucky guys... to have you. But even looking onto you, it's interesting because I think investing is a craft, uh, which is quite different than a startup world. Startup world is very much, I wouldn't call it a trade, but kind of like a trade in some ways, because you're just making a ton of these different decisions. And it is easy to get in and it's easy to get out. I think think of investing a bit like a craft, almost like playing poker. It's very easy Mm -hmm. to get in, very hard to get very good at. Learning from folks like Convoy or folks that are in this like deploying capital, thinking about what is the next thing? How do how do we invest in this next set of founders has always been very, very interesting to me. As uh, Jackson had mentioned, I got together with the founders of Rotten Tomatoes, Crunchyroll, Twitch, and we ended up doing a syndicate in 2021 and 2022, focusing a lot on tech and entertainment. And I feel like the funnest thing about investing into the next generation like this is you literally get to see the future. Like mm-hmm. anytime I would leave reading apps or doing interviews with YC or even talking to a founder from PKO Investments, I'd just be like, wow, this is amazing. This is the future. So if you ever want to get a look into the future, just talk to a founder because they're literally building it and then yeah. to be able to help fund. So we ended up doing a Syndicate. We did about 45 investments, raised about thirty. $1 million for them. And then once COVID kind of has been dying down, we've also been bringing back a bit of some community events that we've been doing at the intersection of tech and entertainment. But this time we're focused a bit more on fandom, which means anime, video games, sci-fi, fantasy, all, all the nerd mm-hmm. stuff. So that's been particularly a lot of fun, just bringing the community back together as well as taking a look into the future.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's phenomenal, and you know, seeing all these all these different things, right? That founders are talking to you about, and everything that's coming down the pipeline, in in gaming and, and elsewhere in entertainment, right? What are you excited about? Like, what are you seeing that is that is interesting?
1: Well, I don't know. I think there's some a lot of interesting things. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you would have asked me, like. <laughs> A couple years ago, or not a couple months ago, it would have been Web three. For this time, I think Web three is still very interesting. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. I think a lot of game developers, like for us, we're like, yeah, it makes sense. Ownership makes sense. And even what's actually quite interesting is the whole idea of AI and this whole mix of like what's happening in Hollywood and how do you how do you mark that as as yours? And it's pretty funny because it's like I would never put these two words together, but now I would. I was like, yeah, this actually might be an interesting solution is you stick it on the blockchain. (laughs) Why wouldn't you do that? Right. Why wouldn't you put that on the blockchain? I met somebody who was basically minting dance moves like TikTok dance moves because they're like, hey, I created this dance move, but I don't get any credit for it. If I mint it onto the blockchain, then everybody will see that this dance move, who it belongs to, well, at least this mm-hmm. wallet number, and that somebody's already laid claim to it. And I thought that was very interesting. So I certainly think that AI has always been around, actually. People don't realize that, but it's always been around. It's just talked about differently. The biggest consumer app right now has been Chat GPT. So people are like, oh my gosh, how do I change this? what what's happening but i i think there still needs to be a bit more infrastructure i also there's a good discussion around i'm sure you have it a lot with your investor friends jackson of like is is it just going to be a commodity and we're going to share one big Mm -hmm. brain but i do think what's kind of interesting given all the creative world is on strike the writer strike and the acting strike that in technology the thing that they're scared of is ai The other piece of technology might be able to help protect or to help save and to actually give credit to where credit is due. Cause that's, that's kind of all they want in some Mm -hmm. ways. So I think that that's very interesting. I never would have thought I would say that. Cause if you asked me three years ago, I was like, AI blockchain, that's just so buzzwordy. I was like, (laughs) oh, yeah, this actually kind of makes sense. When this person was telling me how they were minting like some TikTok dance moves on the blockchain, cause like, Bef- like to copyright something, it's just it's trying to establish like ownership and who published it first. In many ways, so I was like, "Yeah, this is actually quite clever." And then eventually, you could put a smart contract around it, and you could literally just pay out the licensing off of it. I mean, this is this is literally how technology can help protect a lot of creative work instead of just taking it.
0: Last question I have here, you know, when you think about on your career journey, right, and how incredible it's been, what advice would you give yourself, you know, your younger self, um, that may help other entrepreneurs that are coming up in the industry today?
1: Oh man. I think, I think I would told myself, don't, don't waste your time beating yourself up. <laughs> <laughs> um, like most of the things control what you can and just know a lot of things are out of your control. I, I have a feeling a lot of founders are probably like me, high achievers and can really just flog themselves to death on things. And also because I'm Asian, I think there's a bit of like, you know, why can't you do better? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Gene built inside or some type of Mm -hmm. beast. And I'm like, I remember my friend would tell me I didn't get it then, but I get it now. He was just like, Oh, Holly, if we could take all this energy that you're using to either perseverate or beat yourself up on, you could power this little city. And I just think about like all this time I wasted just flogging myself when I could have just been out there trying it again like just mm-hmm. putting it back out there again. I could have had a bit more shots on goal. I could have tried different things and instead I wasted my time just like yelling at myself. So yeah. I would have said, just stop flogging yourself.
0: Holly, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. This has been an incredible insight into the story you've had and what a ride it's been.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Game Changers podcast. Special thanks to our guest, Holly Lou. It was insightful to hear Holly's journey to becoming an industry pioneer and one of the founders of Kabam. We explored how she created a strong team and forged her path, building the technology she needed to succeed within the early chapters of mobile and gaming, and now how she is moving on to invest in the next generation of startups and supporting female founders and their vision for the future. If you liked what you heard, be sure to write a review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you also like reading up on deep dives on the gaming industry, sign up for our weekly newsletter at Convoy.VC. Have a great week, everyone.